From the Miriam Institute, this is the Israel Defense and Diplomacy Forum podcast. Hello friends, I'm Benjamin Anthony, and together with Rosita Panini, my co-founder at the Miriam Institute, I'm delighted to welcome you to the Israel Defense and Diplomacy Forum podcast, or IDDF as we like to call it, a product of the Miriam Institute the premier international forum for Israel-focused dialogue, discussion and debate. The Miriam Institute prides itself on presenting a range of perspectives from Israeli experts, all of whom have been at the very heart of Israeli policymaking and implementation. We do so for the consideration of our listeners, readers and guests, people just like you. And we really do thank you for granting your time and attention to the subject matter discussed in the program. We'd like to invite you to review the full range of the Institute's work, get involved, and invest in our work by making a tax-deductible donation to the Institute, all of which you can do via our website at www.miriaminstitute.org. Before telling you more about the program, I'd like to ask you to please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast at wherever it is you download your podcast from, and be sure to leave us a rating and review. Doing so really will help us to spread the word about the show and to reach an ever wider audience. And we thank you in advance of your assistance on that front. Also, Remember to share the podcast with your friends and your network and help others to enjoy the high-level conversations featured in the program. Friends, IDDF is your bi-weekly Friday deep dive and analysis into the most critical matters emanating from the State of Israel. It's recorded in Hod Hasharon, just outside Tel Aviv, located in the very heart of the land of Israel. And just as hearts need left and right ventricles in order to function effectively, so too does a good conversation. That's why the IDDF podcast is hosted and led by Chuck Freilich, a former Israeli Deputy National Security Advisor aligned with Israel's political center left. Chuck was a long-time senior fellow at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard and now continues to teach at Columbia University in New York and at Tel Aviv University. He's also the author of three groundbreaking works on Israeli national security affairs, those being Zion's Dilemmas, How Israel Makes National Security Policy, Israeli National Security, A New Strategy for an Era of Change, and Israel and the Cyber Threat, How Israel Became a Cyber Superpower. Joining Chuck will be Danny Ayalon, who served as Israel's ambassador to the United States of America from July 2002 to November 2006. He's aligned with the political center-right. Danny served as an elected member of Knesset in the Israel Beitenu party from 2009 to 2013, and he also served as Israel's deputy foreign minister within that same time frame. 
Now sometimes on this show, Chuck and Danny will agree. Sometimes they'll disagree. But they will at all times bring their storied track records, internationally acclaimed expertise, and enduring commitment to a secure and thriving state of Israel to the listening public as they discuss, spar over, and analyze matters of real consequence for the consideration of you, the listener. Lamentably, it's become ever more apparent that we live in a time where the political left and the political right are becoming increasingly entrenched within their respective corners, and they have all but stopped listening to one another. Well, here at the Miriam Institute, we're proud of our commitment to do the very opposite. Here, we champion robust discussion from across a range of opinions as we foster and protect debate led and informed by qualifying individuals. Indeed, that ethos is enshrined within our very name. Not only is the Hebrew word Miriam the name of one of the leading lights of Jewish liturgy, the Hebrew letters from which that word is formed, Mem, Resh, Yud, Mem, spell the Hebrew word Merim, which approximately translates to elevate. Here at the Miriam Institute, we are determined to always elevate the level of discussion about Israel and to challenge our followers to do the very same. That's why we're so proud to bring you this podcast, and we want to give you the opportunity to have your say as well. That's right, Chuck and Danny want to hear from you directly. You can engage with them by emailing your questions to iddf at miriaminstitute.org. I do hope that you'll take the time to reach out, listen, learn, and teach by way of this podcast. And remember, wherever you are politically, wherever you are physically, you can engage with Israel via the Miriam Institute. Israel's future in Israel's hands. And now, it's over to your hosts, Professor Chuck Freilich and Ambassador Danny Ayalon. Hey Danny, it's great to be doing this with you. Uh, it's a real pleasure, and I'm very excited to be doing this one, our first podcast. Never did one like this before. Yes, Chuck, uh, and we thank, of course, uh, to the Miriam Institute for initiating, hosting, providing the platform, and I'm sure we both deeply appreciate the Institute's commitment to in-depth, uh, substantive uh, discourse from all uh, viewpoints, which is today, I think, quite rare. And um, I think our listeners will enjoy unbiased, refreshing, hopefully inspiring views. I hope so. And I want to join you in really warm thanks to the Miriam Institute and to the two co-chairs, my good friends, Benjamin Anthony and Rosita Pnimi. And I think you're right. There are lots of podcasts out there today, including on Israel, mostly about current affairs, 
I think what makes us different, I hope will make us different as we uh, proceed, is first of all that this is going to be in-depth. It's not a news program. We'll be addressing one, two, maybe sometimes three issues per podcast, but not more. And um, as Benjamin noted in the introduction, we both bring uh, high-level and real-world experience, and that's where the real difference will be. Uh, Danny, of course, uh, played a critical role in Israel's foreign service for many years, including the number one, the premier spot in the entire foreign service as ambassador to Washington, and he was deputy foreign minister, a premier's foreign affairs advisor, and a member of Knesset. And I spent many years in the defense establishment as a strategic affairs analyst in the Ministry of Defense, and later as deputy national security advisor. So also deeply involved in formulating Israeli policy on many of the issues that we will be talking about. I think it's important also to note that uh, we will be talking about political affairs, but not really partisan discussion. We set it up as uh, I'm coming from the left, center-left, and Danny's coming from the center-right, but really both of us are centrists, and I think both of us, uh, Danny will tell me in a sec if he agrees with me, I, I don't really believe in the old left-right uh, division. I don't think it's appropriate anymore to Israel's circumstances. The issues are far too complicated. There are some issues where, yes, people would say I take a left approach. On some, I think they would say I take a, a, a right approach. Uh, just trying to attach these brief tags doesn't do it. I, I totally uh, agree with you, Chuck. And it's not just in the case of Israel. Today, things are really complicated. And uh, I don't believe uh, either in uh, left uh, or right. Uh, I only believe in what is right. <laughs> and uh, hopefully... Uh, we will discuss things and we will say things as they are. We can promise all our listeners and viewers this is what we will do based on our own experience and, uh, and since we do not be belong to any uh, political right. party or any right. political movement, we'll say things as it is, as they are. So uh, this podcast will be uh, broadcast bi-weekly every other Friday at uh, 10 a.m. Eastern Time 3 p.m. UK and 5 p.m. Israel time, but it will be available for listening on uh, the Miriam Institute website at all times at uh, miriaminstitute.org. So listeners can send in questions, comments, or suggestions for topics to iddf at miriaminstitute.org. I repeat, iddf at miriaminstitute.org. I think it's important just to say the IDDF is Israel Defense and Diplomacy Forum. So if you remember IDF <laughs> and just add diplomacy, you can remember us. That's great, Chuck. It's IDF plus D, IDDF. Right. <laughs> IDDF at miriaminstitute.org. So all of you, please subscribe, like, and share. Share with all your friends. Today's podcast is recorded on Wednesday, May 18th. Remember that uh, as you listen. Danny, here we go. Um, let's get started. What do you say we start with Ukraine? And depending on how much time we have, maybe we'll get to Iran afterwards. Sounds good. Um, I imagine that we will talk about Iran pretty much uh, every time. Uh, sometimes important current in uh, development, sometimes delving deeply into the basics. So if we start with the Ukraine... Israel's response to the crisis has encountered the strong criticism from without and within. 
In his speech to the Knesset, Ukraine President Zelensky charged that indifference kills. The Washington Post, in a lead editorial, singled out Israel, not for the first time, but also a few other states for hedging. A senior former Israeli diplomat and astute observer, Alon Pinkas, which uh, for uh, uh, full, clo- full uh, clo- disclosure, disclosure uh, he worked with me uh, when I was uh, the ambassador in Washington. He was consul uh, in New York, uh, a very uh, astute observer, and he criticized Israel's uh, what he called immoral and imprudent policy. Shlomo Ben-Ami, a former Israeli foreign minister, known for his uh, wisdom and uh, moderation, He argued that uh, Israel's moral and strategic considerations align in Ukraine and that it can thus support the Western position unequivocally. The price to be paid, he said, which will be, uh, of course, our uh, freedom of uh, movement and uh, flying over Syria and uh, Iraq, that price, he said, would be a mere tactical loss of uh, Israeli freedom of these maneuvers uh, will be uh, short-lived. So, Chuck, what do you think of uh, Israel's response to the Ukraine crisis uh, so far? And uh, let me just uh, say that Israel really had three choices here. First, take a totally moral position, support the U.S. and the West unequivocally at the risk of Israel's national security interest in the North. Uh, Second choice would be to uh, say very little, uh, to preserve ties with uh, Russia, which we need in the North. Or... Third option is uh, to take a balanced pro-Western and pro-Ukrainian approach. Uh, uh, thus, uh, uh, the option that uh, we pretty much took. Right. Uh, so I think those really are the three choices. And I must say, I think the Israeli response has basically been appropriate. I've written a number of op-eds about this in Haaretz and the National Interest, for anyone who's interested. Yet it's true that Israel was... Uh, a day or two behind the curve at when the invasion first took place. And I think that's why this incorrect perception has taken hold, uh, that Israel has not been supportive. Uh, also what contributed to that is that Prime Minister Bennett and Foreign Minister Lapid, uh, they, they sort of split the response. Uh, Bennett was more restrained, of course critical of Russia, but restrained, and Lapid came out openly and very strongly uh, criticizing the Russians. Uh, you mean yeah. like uh, bad cup, good cup? Something like that, yeah, exactly. Uh, I th- the idea was to try and minimize the blow to uh, Israel's ties with the Russians while basically saying the right things. Uh, national leaders, uh, we both know from experience, do not have the luxury of saying what they really want. There are critical interests at, st- at stake. And this isn't just another local war in Ukraine, which is far away from Israel. This is a war which is going to have really far-reaching ramifications for the entire global system and Israel as well. I don't think there's any doubt whose side Israel is on here. And all you have to do is ask the Russians, who've responded very angrily. Um, The ambassador, the Russian ambassador, emphasized that Israel is still a friend, emphasis on the word still, but one from which Russia expects more. Uh, A Russian general implicitly threatened Israel's freedom of of maneuver over Syria, and I believe it was yesterday that the Russians actually fired an S-400 at Israeli aircraft. That's really worrying, worrisome. The S-400 is the most advanced anti-aircraft system in the world. 
And then I think maybe they get first prize for chutzpah on this one, but they decided to condemn Israel's occupation of the Golan Heights. By the way, I did a quick, tra quick check. Uh, the Golan is 0.29% of you, the size of Ukraine. <laughs> and I mean, they put the blame recently on us uh, for, the, uh, for the violence in Jerusalem and expressed total support for the Palestinians. So yes, uh, as the Russian ambassador said, we are still friends, but conditionally. Conditionally, indeed. So, uh, Chuck, there are uh, basically three questions that I see. First, whether Israel's response has been significantly different from that of most countries. Second, whether it's a unique uh, national history, our unique uh, national history culminating in the Holocaust imposes upon us a special moral burden. The fact that uh, so much of the Holocaust took place in the Ukraine makes it particularly poignant. And third, uh, of course, uh, what more could Israel, uh, could Israel actually do? And uh, let me take a stab at the first question. Okay. Whether Israel's response has really been significantly different from other countries. The U.S., for instance. The U.S. has risen to the occasion and responded significantly, but has also set clear limits to what it would do. Ukraine is not a NATO ally, so no U.S. troops would be sent to, be, uh, to defend it, or deploy in its territory. The U.S. will not establish, certainly not impose, a no-flying zone. Right. Over Ukraine. Right? Over the Ukraine, yeah. yes. Uh, and the U.S. would do everything possible to avoid a conflict with Russia and World War III. We can understand that. Absolutely. So why would people criticize Israel for trying to avoid a conflict with Russia in over uh, Syria? I mean, for us, Avoiding a conflict with uh, Russia in our northern border is akin to the U.S. Uh, trying to avoid conflict in, the, in World War III. Absolutely. So, uh, so I think that uh, Israel should not and cannot be criticized on this. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, as U.S. confidence in its ability to supply Ukraine without causing a conflict with Russia has grown, so has U.S. support. But it has uh, exercised great caution still. Um, and we also have to remember. There was this, this poll that you told me. Yes, about 66, two-thirds, 66 percent of all Americans um, in a recent poll that was taken just a few days ago, they opposed direct military involvement in the Ukraine. Uh, it should also be remembered, Chuck, that um, Israel is in, its, uh, in this predicament uh, at least partly because of it's, uh, you know, this is the brutal, uh, uh, honest uh, yeah, observation. Of truth. We are in this predicament because of the American, um, at least partially because of the American withdrawal from Syria, which left it alone, us, to face a growing Iranian threat in a country in which Russia is the only actor, which is uh, Syria, playing any uh, moderating role at all. So it is unfair to judge Israel's response as one would... Uh, a major global power. Israel is a small and embattled regional uh, state uh, facing its own uh, severe national security threats, which uh, we have to take uh, into consideration. Serious. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Uh, and it's not just the U.S. Pretty much everybody else has taken a cautious approach as well and hedged their, their bets, their responses. Both France and Germany, leading European powers, warned of the dangers of a conflict with Russia. It took Germany weeks 
to begin providing uh, modest military aid. France has provided only limited economic aid and minimal uh, military aid. The EU, which the EU as a whole, which ignored the dangers of its growing energy dependence on Russia for years, well, yes, they finally agreed to uh, gradually reduce oil imports, but not gas. They still pay the Russians over a billion dollars a day a day for energy. Uh, the Japanese, who are only dependent on Russia for eight percent of their electric power, provided Ukraine twenty-eight million dollars of aid as of early April. Not impressive. And South Korea has provided, uh, as of late April, a really meager $800,000 in aid. But yeah, they did uh, pledge another $30 million. In any event, the list goes on. And the point I'm tr trying to make is that when you grapple with a raging bear, and a, a Russian bear, uh, even major powers act cautiously. So I don't think, I think Israel got too much criticism here. I don't think Israel's difference has been significantly different from the major powers. Uh, clearly supportive of Ukraine, I really don't think there's any doubt about that. But uh, we also wanted to be careful not to cause a rupture in relations with, with Russia. Absolutely. And still, Chuck, before we continue, I think it is important to describe what Israel's response has actually been. Uh, because much of the criticism is simply, simply uninformed. Uh, true, Israel did not support the condemnation of Russia in the Security Council at the outset right. uh, of the war, mm -hmm. um, which uh, Russia vetoed it in any event, so it was insignificant, uh, because uh, everybody knew it was just a, uh, you know, going through the motions, just a symbolic uh, stand, right. because uh, there has no there has been no chance for it to pass because of the veto power of uh, Russia. So it was, uh, I think, pretty much insignificant uh, whether we were supporting this or not. But what is more important is that we did support two General Assembly resolutions and uh, we joined in the call of, for Russia's uh, ex expulsion from the Human Rights Council. And by the way, when we talk about the Human Rights uh, Council, mm -hmm. Chuck, this is one of the most anti-Israeli body is. in the world. Uh, 50% of all its agenda is dealing only with one country, Israel. It's amazing. Not with all the inequities and injustices and human rights abuse in so many other countries. Iran, North Korea, Russia, you yeah, just name it. China and Saudi Arabia and some other serious uh, human rights violators. And by the way, Russia always took the Palestinian side. Not even once. I checked the, uh, just for the last 20 years. There was not even once that Russia did not join the condemnation of Israel in the Human Rights uh, um, you know, uh, Council. Uh, so we did support that. Uh, but also, Israel in, in kind, in real terms, uh, Israel sent a fully equipped and staffed 150 bed field hospital for a period of six weeks, which treated over 6,000 patients. Yeah, we were the only country to do that. Yes. Uh, also, we further provided six large uh, generations for a Ukraine... Generators. generators, you're right, for a Ukraine hospital, uh, 10 ambulances, and 100 tons of humanitarian assistance, including food, clothing, and uh, water purification equipment. We also, Israel, admitted 20... Little Israel, you know, admitted 24,000 refugees, of whom two-thirds are not Jewish. Now, I think it's, it's important for our, for our listeners to understand 
24,000 refugees for a small country like Israel, you will have to multiply it by about 50 or 100. So it's like, uh, let's say, uh, the U.S. is accepting 2.4 million uh, refugees or, or, or so. Nowhere Right. Um, until uh, mid-April, uh, we it refused. Uh, we refused to provide military assistance uh, of any kind. But as the war uh, evolved, and like the U.S., Israel's confidence grew, and we also saw the, uh, I would say, the atrocities of yeah. the the, the Russians in Ukraine. Uh, so that also prompted us to announce that uh, we would provide Ukraine with uh, protective gear, such as helmets and uh, and vests. Um, Israel reportedly conducts uh, intelligence uh, cooperation with Ukraine, and we um, participated in a U.S.-led international forum designed to provide Ukraine with uh, ongoing military and other assistance. And um, an interagency team is now exploring ways of increasing our assistance. I must say it sounds like a pretty good response to me. I usually tend to be pretty critical, but I think the approach uh, was basically appropriate. Uh, I think people have to understand that Israel is in a really bad position here. Uh, we have very, very good reasons for wanting to avoid uh, a confrontation with Russia, with Russia. And those reasons are very similar to the kinds of reasons that, that lay behind the response by the major powers, the U.S., the French, the Germans, and others. Uh, Japan that I mentioned before, it's really the same thing. It's taking into, into consideration your strategic interests. So let me start with the situation in Syria, and that's really um, one of the most, if not the most, critical considerations here. Iran is busy trying to turn Syria into a forward operating base against Israel. And they're trying, and they've been using it as a transit point to deliver weapons to Hezbollah in Lebanon. Now, for those who don't know, Hezbollah already has a simply mammoth arsenal of Iranian-supplied rockets. Maybe 150,000 of them all aimed directly at Israel. I may be paranoid, but I'm sure there's one directed, directly aimed at my apartment. I could be wrong. Uh, what the Iranians are now trying to do is replicate what they've built in Lebanon in Syria and build up their own capabilities in Syria, create one united Lebanese and Syrian northern front. It's a huge threat for Israel. As a matter of fact, uh, this is the greatest threat that we face today, short of Iran going nuclear, but it is a, it's a huge threat. And in the next round with Hezbollah, if and when it happens, Israel's home front will be hit in a way, the civilian home front, the civilian population, will be hit in a way that we've never never been in the history of the, of the conflict. It's going to be ugly. And the Russians have the ability to affect uh, just how badly we're hit. The, the Russian S-400s that are deployed in Syria could certainly limit and maybe even potentially shut down the Israeli Air Force's ability to fly over Syrian skies. So our ability to prevent this uh, Iranian and Hezbollah buildup. This is critical for us. Uh, so far, Russians allowed us. Russia has allowed us to operate freely over Syrian uh, airspace. They could change that at any time of their choosing. Now, Chuck, what do you really mean by allowing? Uh, Russia allowing Israel? I think this is something that we should uh, delve into uh, with uh, 
quite, uh, I would say, uh, sobriety without being uh, too uh, considered. But uh, I don't think that Israel needs anyone's permission to act on its behalf for uh, self-defense. Um, you know, we did not ask the United States, and we certainly depend on the U.S. much, much more sure. than, uh, than Russia. But we did not ask the U.S. permission when we attacked the Iraqi nuclear uh, reactor in uh, 1981, nor did we ask for uh, permission when we attacked the, Rus the Syrian reactor in Azarka in uh, 2007. So um, this is something that um, we really have to, uh, to, to make sure, and I think to stress on uh, internationally, and even uh, without any equivocation to, to, to the Russians or anyone else, Israel is not a vassal state for anyone. We are independent, we are sovereign to take our own decisions. Of course, um, reality and practicality means that we need cooperation, and we will continue to uh, prefer cooperation with uh, uh, the, the Russians. But, uh, in the, you know, maybe we were so in the, uh, dependent on them when the war in the Ukraine broke out. But now, Russia is certainly overextended and much weaker than it was um, at the time. Uh, and remember, Chuck, uh, Russia may even have an interest in Israel attacking the Iranians in Syria, thereby weakening their primary competitor for influence and, uh, and and resources in the country. All right. I mean, I, I certainly agree with you on that. But I, we should also take into account that a cornered bear is a bear at its most dangerous. And we really have to be careful here. Also take into account that in the, in the total mess that is Syria, Russia has been the only partial counterbalance, counterbalance to Iran's growing influence there. They have helped a little bit to contain the situation, uh, trying to keep Iran and, and uh, Hezbollah forces away from Israel's border. Not too much, but they've done something. So we do need them in Syria. It's critical. And what's even more critical, maybe, is their role in regard to the Iranian nuclear issue. They are part of the P6 that addressing the issue. They're par a party to the nuclear agreement, the 2015 agreement, and the negotiations for a renewal of the agreement uh, in Vienna. It doesn't look like it's going too far so, uh, so far, but the Russians are an important player there. Absolutely, and um, you know, the art of uh, diplomacy and uh, how you really play out the best uh, political interests or international interests for a country is uh, how you really walk a fine line. Yep. in times of conflict, where you really find the common areas. And we do have common areas uh, with the Russians. And of course, it also, Chuck, it's important to remember that about 15% of Israel's population was either born in the former Soviet Union or are descendants thereof. And about 600,000 Jews still live in Russia. About two to uh, 300,000 still live in the Ukraine. And their ability to emigrate to Israel or simply remain in contact with family members and friends is critical uh, for is. Israel. It is. And uh, unless U.S. Uh, retrenchment from the Middle East uh, ends, following the war in Ukraine, Russia is likely to remain the primary superpower in the Middle East, even if uh, as a weakened one. And as a superpower that has concluded uh, sales of major weapons, uh, systems, and nuclear power rea reactors to Turkey and Egypt, maybe even to uh, Jordan and uh, the Saudis, we have to take this uh, into regards very, very seriously. So, we still uh, 
very much have to continue living with the Russians. I agree with you completely. Is crit Russia is critical for Israel. There's no doubt about it, especially at a time when the U.S. had been retrenching from the Middle East, despite uh, the administration's statements to the contrary. It's actually now three administrations in a row that have continued this process of retrenchment. And if I presume that the U.S. will continue that process following the war in Ukraine. Yeah, and that could be quite... Uh, concerning for us, disconcerning for the, for the region, and maybe even beyond. We'll talk, of course, about the U.S. role in the region in a future, in a future podcast. Absolutely. So, uh, okay, let's uh, go back to the Israel and the Ukraine. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, on to the question of whether the burdens of Jewish history means that Israel can and should do more to assist Ukraine. Uh, and here, uh, should we do more? Uh, the, rep the response so far, has it been reasonable so far? We agree uh, on that. Uh, yeah, or like all, and like all states, uh, Israel's foremost moral commitment must be to its own security and vital interests. These are all points to consider. I agree again. We're in broad agreement today. That may not always be the case <laughs> in future. I'm beginning to uh, worry here. Yeah, it's, it's deeply concerning. <laughs> but... <laughs> Okay, so so far I agree. And then the question is, what more can Israel do? That was, I think, the third question we posed before. Some people say, all right, we understand you can't provide offensive weapons to the Ukraine, but how about defensive weapons? Or how about at least defensive cyber capabilities? The idea being uh, that, of course, defensive weapons are uh, less aggressive, let's call, call it that. And people also like to distinguish between lethal and non-lethal weapons, weapon systems. And I think these distinctions are largely moot. So some people say, well, I mean, I'll explain why. Some people say, why don't you provide the Iron Dome, the Israel's anti-rocket, uh, anti-missile system, a unique system that no one else in the world has, basically. It's a purely defensive system, right? Well... Maybe it is defensive, but the Russians are unlikely to look on it very favorably if any of their missiles, or aircraft for that matter, are shot down. And then people say, okay, lethal and non-lethal weapon systems, so how about just providing radar or communications gear? Well, yes, they are non-lethal systems, but they are absolutely critical for offensive purposes. Again, the Russians won't like that. All right, so how about the idea of defensive cyber weapons? Well... It turns out that the difference between a defensive cyber weapon and, a, and an offensive one is just a few lines of code. And anybody who knows how to code defensive weapons also knows how to turn them into offensive ones. So then the, I think the, the, the real question is, right, so what can we do if we can't really provide any military aid? Yeah, we provided some vests and, uh, and helmets, but if we can't do that, what can we do? And I would say that we really could make a national effort, an outside national effort, to provide humanitarian aid, food, clothing, things like that. I think we should send the field hospital back to Ukraine. Until, until now, the six weeks that it was in operation, it was a civilian operation, and the civilians understandably wanted to come home. I think maybe what has to happen is it has to be turned into an IDF operation and then it can be sustained by calling up reservists. Another thing that we could do uh, 
Israel's Home Front Command, the IDF Home Front Command, has really unique search and rescue capabilities that very few other states in the world have. We could send some of these teams to the Ukraine to help uh, dig people out of the rubble. And a third thing that we could do here is uh, launch an airlift to fly refugees out of Ukraine, whether they wish to come to Israel or fly them to other locations in Europe. Yeah, that's quite interesting, Chuck, because I don't think there are many countries who have the capability for such airlift. And uh, luckily enough, fortunately enough, Israel does have this capability. And uh, But, Chuck, what you mentioned, these measures uh, alone would constitute a disproportionate uh, contribution. Uh, unfortunately, reality has a nasty tendency of getting in the way of the best of intentions. As uh, the recent Hamas-inspired wave of violence and Iranian actions remind us, once again, Israel still faces genocidal enemies who seek its extinction and demand its attention. Yeah, we don't have the luxury of just thinking about what's happening in Ukraine now. Yeah. Bottom line, I think uh, we are in agreement today, and uh, I think it's... Uh, no-brainer to uh, be uh, on a agreement on this, uh, that Israel must balance its uh, strategic interest in Syria with its long-term ironclad alliance with the United States and the Western world. Uh, there is absolutely no doubt where we stand, but bears, especially when they are cornered, can be dangerous. Yeah, they can be, they can definitely be dangerous. Hello friends, I'm Benjamin Anthony, co-founder of the Miriam Institute. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the IDDF podcast, hosted by former Deputy Israeli National Security Advisor Chuck Freilich and featuring Israel's former ambassador to the United States of America, Danny Ayalon. Before you continue with the program, I'd like to briefly tell you about some of the key initiatives of the Miriam Institute, the full details of which you can read on our website, at www.miriaminstitute.org. Here, at the Miriam Institute, we believe that Israel is her own finest ambassador. That's why we bring select groups to Israel comprised of individuals who seek a greater understanding of the realities of the modern state and its ancient past. Our annual Israel Strategy and Policy Tour, ISAP Active, brings active serving officers of the United States Army to Israel for a 10-day deep-dive tour of the country. That tour delves into Israel's strategy and policy considerations, and the officers hold ranks ranging from major to colonel, and the majority of the participants have undertaken overseas deployments and will continue on into command positions beyond the conclusion of the tour. We also operate an annual ISAP tour for cadets at select U.S. institutions of leadership, including the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, the U.S. Air Force Academy at Colorado Springs, and the Virginia Military Institute. The tour brings these future officers to Poland for a two-day tour of the Nazi death camps, followed by a 12-day tour of the State of Israel. All of the participants will go on to serve in the United States Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps as officers. Our annual Israel Law and Policy Tour, or ILAP, brings elite graduate students from around the world 
to the State of Israel for an immersion into the legal and policy considerations of the Jewish State. ILAP alumni represent the best and the brightest of the graduate student community and we are proud to continue our engagement with our alums by way of Israel-focused lectures on campus and Israel-related opinion pieces penned by graduates of that tour. Miriam's campus presents to the most elite graduate students anywhere in the world, turning those campuses into the laboratory of thought on all matters related to Israel. To date, we have carried out more than 450 campus presentations at the master's and doctoral level, and we are committed to continuing that work. Finally, be sure to visit our Miriam's commentary page where you'll be able to find our top-tier written analysis penned by some of Israel's preeminent experts, and you'll also be able to listen to our podcast. You can learn all about those initiatives and a great deal more and support our work by way of a tax-deductible donation by visiting us at www.miriaminstitute.org. And now, it's on with the IDDF podcast with Chad Freilich and Danny Ayalon. Well, Chuck, I think we pretty much summed up the Ukrainian issue, at least for uh, this session. I have no uh, doubt that we will uh, re we'll come back oh, yeah. to this issue for, um, for many more times. Unfortunately, uh, we don't see the end of the Ukrainian war. I would say that we don't even see the end of the beginning, to rephrase uh, <laughs> Churchill's uh, yeah. yes, uh, immortal saying on World War II. But uh, to our viewers, uh, before we go on to the next uh, subject on Iran, which is Iran, of course, is I would again uh, urge you all, if there are any comments, uh, any observations, any questions uh, that you want to uh, ask us, uh, please log in to uh, the uh, website iddf at miriaminstitute.org. Remember, iddf is uh, Israel Defense and Dipl Diplomacy Forum. IDF plus F, IDDF at miriaminstitute.org. And Miriam, just to spell it out, uh, it's uh, spelled as M-I-R-Y-A-M-I-N-S-T-I-T-U-T-E dot O-R-G. Miriam is M-I-R-Y-A-M, institute dot O-R-G. So, Chuck, what do you say we turn now to uh, the Iranian issue? Yeah, how could we not? The truth is we've both been dealing with this issue since the 90s. And I must say for myself, at least, it's become just about a full-time preoccupation, uh, almost an obsession. <laughs> yes. Anyways. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, my sentiments, <laughs> exactly. I would uh, start maybe by, uh, you know, after a, uh, a year-long effort, more than a year-long effort, the Biden administration uh, appears to be close uh, to a return to to the old deal. Uh, if there is any uh, procrastination, it's on the Iranian side, quite uh, interestingly, uh, which uh, means again that the Iranians have the upper end when it comes to the tactical maneuvers of negotiations. It seems like that the U.S. wants 
uh, an agreement more than the Iranians, and that puts uh, the U.S. and us on a, on a disadvantage, just like, I think, a repeat of uh, the 2015 mm -hmm. JCPOA, the Iranian deal that was signed in, uh, in uh, Vienna. And um, it may be that uh, this agreement or uh, the, the, the negotiations may uh, just come apart over the Iranian demand that the U.S. removes the Revolutionary Guards from the U.S. terrorist list. Uh, I know it's a preposterous uh, demand, really outrageous, but I know that you have come out in uh, support of accepting this demand, and uh, why would you do that? Well, we're going to go into the whole Iranian issue in depth in our next podcast in two weeks, Friday, June 3rd. But I think what we have time to do today is to take a quick stab at some of the, some of the critical points. And you're absolutely right. It seems to be that the final issue that the negotiation, the make-or-break issue, at least at the moment, is the Iranian demand that the Revolutionary Guards, the, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, known as the IRGC, be removed from the U.S. terrorist list. The IRGC was designated, that's the term, by the Trump administration. It was actually the first time that an entire state institution had been designated. And until then, it was just the, the El Quds, the uh, force, that part of the Revolutionary Guards that is actually involved in conducting the terrorist activity. So, first of all, let me say, uh, I would love to leave them on the terrorist list. If I, if I had my druthers, they would remain there forever. They are a terrorist organization, a heinous organization, and they have lots of Israeli and American and some other blood on their hands. The question is whether this should be the, the, the sticking point. And the truth is that the designation of the entire IRGC, I believe the Revolutionary Guards as a whole, is unnecessary. What's critical is that the Quds Force, again, the sub-part of the organization that is actually involved in terrorism, that they remain designated, and they will. That was the administration's position to begin with. The fallback if the Iranians really make this the breaker uh, make issue, is just to leave the Al-Quds force, not the entire Revolutionary Guards. I, I also think um, it's important to note, I, I was in 2015 when the agreement came out, and I remain to this day a supporter of the agreement, not because it was such a great agreement, not because it didn't have important flaws, it did. But simply, if you do a process of elimination, which will go, again, we'll go into this in greater detail in the next podcast, I think it's the best of the bad options that we face today. And so if going back to the deal is the best of the bad options, I don't think that we should allow what is a symbolic issue, the designation of the IRGC as a whole, to, to be the issue that it comes, comes apart over. Uh, we just don't have the luxury of living with or compromising because of uh, symbolic issues. We've got much bigger uh, fish to fry, and that's where the effort should be. I'll tell you, Chuck, I don't think that uh, the designation of the IR IRGC, uh, keeping it on the terror list, is uh, merely symbolic. We have to remember, uh, funds are uh, fungible. And uh, if we keep the IRGC out of the terror lists and just uh, concentrate on Al-Quds, uh, Al-Quds will have enough ways, and the IRGC 
to fund money and resources and uh, all kinds of uh, other capabilities to uh, Al-Quds. Now, it's not only uh, a mere symbolic issue because there is a larger, I think, um, proposition here. And this is how will the Iranians relate to this agreement? If they feel that they can push the Americans or the P5 plus one uh, every which way, and uh, the IRGC is a, is a real uh, lightning rod. If they can bend the American arms on this, why wouldn't they be able to bend or on, you know, further along the way? And uh, I'm not sure that they will have the right incentives to adhere to the letter and the spirit of the new agreement which may be signed. Uh, this is why I think it's an important issue. And quite frankly, Chuck, a no deal is better than a bad deal. Okay, well, we're drawing the lines of disagreement. I think it'll make for a very interesting podcast next week, uh, in two weeks, more correctly. Look, the designation of the, or non-designation of the IRGC won't determine the amount of money uh, that the Iranians get. If, the, if a new deal is signed, they're going to get all the money in any event. And the fact that they, they will funnel some of it to the Al-Quds force, I have absolutely no doubt. You're right about that. But again, that will happen regardless of the designation of the entire IRGC as a whole. And so then the question is, given the different options, what really is the best of the bad ones? And we're in a bad situation here. There are no good options. Uh, let me... I think it's important that we tell our listeners that just based on our own experience since we've dealt with this issue for so long that we share some of the basic considerations with them and there are a number of critical basic questions like that and let me start with one of them and that is why does Iran apparently want nuclear weapons and I have to say that they have, if, if we were Iranian strategists rather than Israeli strategists, I think we would want the nuclear capability as well because Iran has got very good strategic reasons. But even before, for wanting a nuclear capability, but even before saying that, I think we, uh, I should make two comments. One is that Iran is essentially a uh, threshold nuclear state already today. And if they had wanted to cross the nuclear threshold, they could have done so certainly by 2010, probably even a few years earlier. And the fact that they haven't done it, in other words, they haven't made the, the political decision, the decision by the top leadership to go this last mile, indicates that there's at least some reason to question whether they really want an operational capability or not. I think that that's an important point for people to realize. And... As far as Iran adhering to the agreement or not, well, first of all, the side that violated the agreement to date was unfortunately the United States when it withdrew from the agreement in 2015, even though no one at the time, including the CIA or Israeli intelligence, thought that Iran was in violation. But the more important point here is to quote President Reagan, it's always uh, verify, trust, trust, but verify, right? Okay. Uh, we don't trust the Iranians for one second here. And obviously, we will all be following what they do very, very carefully. Yes, well, I think there is one point that uh, should be obvious to everyone, especially when the Iranians uh, say that they need this capability in order to save 
on energy. A country which is so much flush with oil in such a, a cheap way, you know, for them to drill oil and to bring it up, it's uh, cheaper than even in Saudi Arabia. And one of the top three exports Absolutely. in the world. Absolutely. So for them to put billions and billions of dollars on nuclear energy, as they claim, civil nuclear energy, is of course, it's, it's a hoax. And the fact that they continue to say it very, very seriously tells us what do they think about us. Yeah, I wouldn't uh, call it a hoax. Today, they don't really need the nuclear energy. You're right. But if you look down the line a decade from now, there's a little-known fact which is absolutely astonishing. And that's that Iran, which sits on this absolute ocean of oil, is, going, is in serious danger of becoming an importer of refined crude because their uh, population is growing so rapidly. Uh, consumption of oil per capita is going up because the standard of living uh, is going up, or at least the Western, a more Western lifestyle. People are driving cars, it's, using air conditioners, etc. So sometime by the early to mid-30s, uh, a little over a decade from now, their production level, if you think of a graph of the production level on one axis and their consumption level on the other, these two uh, are going to meet. And with a short time after that, Iran could become a net importer of crude oil. That's an astounding thing, and it's true of the Saudis also, by the way. Yes, well, that could uh, certainly happen, but for that, I think there is another answer. Why do you put all your uh, eggs in one basket, which is the, uh, um, the nuclear energy? Mm -hmm. There are so many other which are cheaper sources, whether it's wind, and we know that there's uh, an area which is uh, quite appropriate for uh, wind energy in Iran. There is also solar. There is also biomass. There are so many other which are fraction of uh, cost uh, of a nuclear. And can you say something more about the, uh, the wind? Because I wasn't familiar with that. Yes. Well, you know that uh, today there is a new um, new technology where you can really put this wind posts. You know this uh, this windmills the turbines, posts, yeah. the turbines also on water, not just in uh, on land. And when you do it on water, and Iran has quite a few, a lot of uh, open lone coast. Uh, lone coast uh, this is cheaper, and there is a lot of wind which is off the coast. You know, in in the water. So there are many, many ways for them to, uh, to really not just explore, but to exploit without turning into a uh, nuclear energy. Okay. Um, they've made the case that they need nuclear energy as a, as a big source. Uh, I think they do have a legitimate case that they, they do need new sources of energy, but you're right that there are other ones they can be looking at as well. I'm going to try and address uh, this fundamental issue of why the Iranians even want a nuclear capability. And again, we have to question whether they intend to go all the way or hold as a threshold nuclear state. And they're just about there today. Um, they're thought to be just a few weeks, weeks from having enough fissile material for the first couple of bombs. But they still need a year and a half or two years to put it on a, uh, on a warhead. They haven't completed the warhead. You mean to weaponize it. To weaponize it, right. But let me go to this question of what are Iran's strategic reasons 
for wanting a nuclear capability. Now put yourself uh, in the position of an Iranian strategist or an Iranian leader and you're sitting in Tehran and you look outside at the world, what do you see? Well, just a few years ago, what you saw was that Iran being surrounded on all sides, either by U.S. forces, U.S. allies, countries that the U.S. had conquered. Today, it's gotten a little bit better from the Iranian perspective, but still, they're not quite surrounded, but largely so, by U.S. allies. And the U.S. still has the Fifth Fleet deployed uh, in, the, in the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean. The United States toppled two of their neighboring regimes in the space of two years. First, the Taliban in Afghanistan, uh, which was their chief ideological or theocratic rival at the time, and then Saddam Hussein in Iraq, their number one strategic rival. In the end, by the way, the U.S. did a favor for them that they never dreamed of in their, wi in their wildest dreams, their wildest fancies. But the fact is the U.S. did topple two neighboring regimes, and the Bush administration spoke explicitly about Iran being next on the list, had things gone better in Iraq. And there's been legislation on, on the books, uh, Congress for decades, congressional legislation, saying that it is the policy of the United States uh, to promote regime change in Iran. So Obama didn't really talk about it, and uh, Trump sort of hinted at it. It's off the books, it's off the table for them, certainly under the Biden administration. I think the Iranians feel a little bit more comf comfortable with Biden, but still they don't know who's going to be elected in a couple of years from now, right? And who comes after that? Yes, well, you've raised, Chuck, um, many valid points, but uh, I would like to, to address them. I've got a whole bunch more. And, well, I would like to address them almost one by one. Okay. Um, you say about their legitimate uh, needs. I would say this uh, legitimacy is totally becomes unlegitimated when they threaten to destroy other countries. A, uh, and, and certainly they uh, keep saying, you know, um, every so often that their uh, capabilities and their aim and objective is to uh, destroy the Jewish uh, state. On the one hand, they deny the Holocaust. On the other hand, they are preparing another Holocaust. So just for that, they should not even come close to any kind of nuclear um, capabilities. So this is one point. Secondly, you say that they're threatened. Well, I'm not sure that the record shows that. Truly, uh, they were attacked by Saddam Hussein back in 1980, but look what happened since. No longer Saddam Hussein, no longer Iran, with the 2003, uh, 2003 uh, Gulf War. Mm -hmm. Uh, Iraq is basically a non-country now, so certainly Almost a vassal state of theirs. Absolutely, so certainly does not pose any uh, any threat, certainly not strategic threat, on Iran. So this also this uh, argument, uh, I believe, is uh, is gone, and even the Americans in the Fifth Fleet. I do not recall the Fifth Fleet ever uh, threatening the U.S. The, the Iran. Quite, uh, I would say, quite the opposite. It was the Iranians who provoke. The, the Fifth Fleet, including uh, uh, captivating uh, American uh, sailors and American ship, um, and uh, and mostly the American presence in in this region, in the Hormuz and uh, Saudi Arabia, is uh, against uh, the terror of Al Qaeda or ISIS or even uh, um, Muslim uh, Brotherhood. 
So um, the Iranians should feel pretty safe if they kept to their own uh, territory and if they would not provoke and threaten others. They could be living safe and sound, safely and soundly uh, without their provocation. So again, that leads me, and I think I'm not the only one, uh, to, to suspect that they want these nuclear capabilities uh, basically to strengthen their uh, nefarious potential of terror and destabilizing, destabilizing the area. I couldn't agree with you more. And of course, w w one thing that we both agree on totally is the objective, which is to prevent Iran from going nuclear. And where we will probably disagree is a, on how exactly to do that, at least some of the measures. What I'm trying to do now is to lay out the Iranian thinking. I'm not saying that it's right. I'm saying that having observed uh, this issue, uh, followed it for many years, I think what I'm presenting is the way the Iranians view things. And I do think that they feel deeply threatened by the United States. And the primary reason today that they seek to develop the nuclear capability is against the U.S. Because they know that once you have a nuclear capability, you've basically bought impunity. Nobody's going to attack you or try to topple your regime. So today, the fear of the United States, I think, is their number one uh, motivator for pursuing the nuclear program. Iraq today, you're absolutely right, no longer poses a, a threat to Iran, but it was probably the original motivator for the program, the fear of, of uh, Iraq, and they fought an eight-year-long war, the Iran-Iraq war. It was really a horrifically bloody war, a little bit World War I style, basically static lines, and hundreds of thousands of people were killed. Also with chemical weapons? Including with chemical, chemical weapons. Uh, the Iraqis fired, it was called the War of the Cities. They fired missiles, chemical missiles, at Iran. Tens of thousands, apparently. Tens of thousands of people died from these chemical attacks. And no one in the world could have cared less. So a second thing, first of all, they have this national trauma. And it's still a very open and live, very sensitive trauma. In Iran, they say wherever you go, there are memorials and, and uh, all sorts of uh, commemorative events taking place, monuments. People say it's a little bit like Israel with, with the Holocaust, Lahavdil, uh, as we say in Hebrew. Lahavdil, yeah. But still, in, in terms of how they commemorate it, I'm saying. So Iraq is still in the back of their minds. Not a threat today, but... Allahu you Akbar, know, to use a different expression, and they don't know what's going to happen in the future. They've got Pakistan on their border, a Sunni, a Sunni nuclear power uh, with a robust nuclear arsenal. Now, they don't feel threatened by Pakistan today. Their relationship is okay. But I think we can all agree that Pakistan has not been the most stable and uh, desirable neighbor. None of us would want to have Pakistan on our border, and for them, it's something else to look at. Well, again, Chuck, it's, it's all very valid, but I think what we should concentrate is not what the Iranians think or feel, you know, which is intangible, but what they do. And we know that they have cheated all along, and until now, uh, every, uh, you know, if we were not really focused on that, there are many nuclear sites, military nuclear sites, that have not been found. And um, Iran is a large, large territory, and it is uh, really a nightmare for any intelligence service to really be monitoring everything they do. So even the 
even the 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 doubt that they can cheat or the possibility that we are not monitoring right or there's some things escape us i don't think we can live with this great uh, danger now we also know that um, the Iranians, uh, and they say it uh, quite uh, openly, not only they want to destroy us, as we mentioned, uh, or uh, go against the uh, Sunni uh, Saudi regime and, and others in, in, in the Gulf, not only that they support uh, the terror everywhere, but they really want to be the uh, hegemon in the region. And to become the hegemon in the region, See, I, I believe, Chuck, that uh, the nuclear capability is not an uh, end goal in itself. It's only a means to become the hegemon, to be able to dictate, you know, what goes on in the region. And my uh, one of the fears I have is that the nuclear Iran, they can even dictate oil prices. So this is where, or, or, or just uh, in, in, you know, on a, on a flip of a... Of a, of a dime, they can stop and sever all uh, um, movements, uh, marine uh, shipments, and all that. And they will have no, uh, I mean, there will be no answer to that by the international community. It's not just South Korea, which is in the far flung of the world, doesn't really control a strategic uh, waterways and, and otherwise. And I think this is where the Iran issue is not just an Israeli problem. It's an international problem. It's the regional problem, and it's also an American problem. And I do not feel that the American administration, at least at this point today, the Biden administration, have the full scope of the ramification of a nuclear Iran. I agree, certainly agree with you. I don't think... Well, you know, I think actually the administration so far, uh, they have, at least on the IRGC designation issue, they have taken a firm position. And so they do clearly have limits. They want to go back to the deal uh, very much, but not at all costs. But let me step back for a minute, because you were saying, I think, absolutely correctly that for the Iranians, the nuclear capability, this, by the way, would be true for other countries as well, uh, the weapon is, is a means to an end. It's not an end in and of itself. And being the regional hegemon is probably the third primary motivator and along with the fear of the U.S., it's one of the two today, the two primary motivators. Uh, you're absolutely right. There's Israel, of course, and they view Israel as a threat. We'll come back to that in, in greater depth another time. But again, I want to say it's important. To, I'm not trying, of course, to defend the Iranians in any way. I'm trying to explain the way they view the world. And if you want to deal with an adversary or an enemy of then you have to understand their, their thinking, and we agree on that. It's important to add then there's also, you have to understand Iran's history. They have a history going back thousands of years, much of it rather unpleasant to, to be, to say, to put things mildly. Iran was conquered and the country was devastated time after time. They have that history, that fundamental sense of insecurity. They have a sense of being surrounded by adversaries on all sides. Again, a historical sense today as well, but this historical sense of being surrounded, of being what people call a Shia island in a Sunni sea. Because the Shia have always been a small minority within the Muslim world, and it was Iran being the only, at least in the past, the only Shiite state. Today, Iraq is also predominantly Shiite. But the sense of isolation. 
the regime also turned the nuclear issue into a national cause celebre. They sold it to the public as a purely civil program. They maintain to this day that it's a purely civil program. And here you have the evil Americans and even more evil Israelis trying to deprive them of their legitimate right. And remember, they are members of the NPT. They signed it. Uh, nobody has 100% legal proof that uh, they're developing a military program. Now, for them to come and admit today that it's a military program, and, for example, to give full access, as you were saying, to some of the military sites, which will prove that it's a military program, that means that they've been lying to their people for decades. And they'd lose any credibility, let alone towards the international community. Add to that that the people responsible for the whole nuclear issue in Iran are our good friends, the Revolutionary Guards, once again. We talked about them before. Okay. The, the Revolutionary Guards control a huge part of the entire Iranian economy. The way it works in Iran uh, is that they have, we would call them conglomerates, these huge holding companies. The IRGC has its own holding companies like this. Um, the regime has, a, the rest of the regime has its own conglomerates like this. Most of the Iranian economy is controlled by these, there are two different kinds of conglomerates. The IRGC controls the nuclear industry, and so they have a vested interest, a financial, institutional, and personal interest in continuing the program, which may put aside the, the politics and the strategic considerations just on that level. Yes, but Chuck, one thing I want to say about this, um, let's say, quote-unquote, legitimate reason for them to do it or motivation in terms of self-defense, right? They wanted to say for self-defense because they are being like, an, uh, feel like a, an island, a Shia island, Pakistan and all that, their history, thousands of years of history of invasions and all that. But if we take this um, rationale or logic uh, of yours here, Chuck. Then That's it's, not mine, it's the Iranians. Of the, or the Iranians, yeah. Uh, if we if we accept it or if we permit that, then it's the end of the uh, non-proliferation treaty. It's the end of the NPT. Because why would not uh, Finland, which may be threatened by uh, Russia, whether they will become a NATO member or not, it's a side issue. But Finland or Sweden or what about South Korea? Why shall, shouldn't South Korea become a, a nuclear or, or Japan? I think that uh, the regime of the NPT was such that uh, no other country than the, the, the P5, the, the Security Council um, superpowers, will hold a nuclear power. However, the deal was that on the obligation of the P5, the superpowers, is to uh, actually cast a nuclear umbrella over these other countries. So certainly uh, there could be some um, regional uh, agreements that uh, would put or, or, you know, the, their uh, concerns uh, to, uh, to, to rest. But I'm not sure that they want that. And they would go anyway. And um, if we go back, you know, the, the IRGC we know, but I think it goes beyond that. Even if they do acquiesce and they, uh, let's say, they will agree to uh, keep the I or, or they will lift their demand about taking off the IRGC from the terror list, I still think the agreement may be not sufficient. I think it is weaker than the JCPOA. I, I agree with you. Had the JCPOA continued 
from 2015, I wouldn't be so concerned. But now, you know, there's no going back. The genie is out of the box and you cannot really put it back. And I'm afraid that an agreement now, the way that I understand it, is going to be even weaker than the JCPOA, shorter. Uh, when uh, the Biden administration came to power, they said that they would go for a stronger and longer. It seems to be weaker and shorter. And this is the main problem I see now. What is the strategy? I think the strategy, and uh, I'm no defender of, uh, of uh, any policies of one way or another, but uh, with the maximum sanctions that Trump imposed on uh, Iran, there was a clear way out. They were on the verge of collapse, and I'm not sure that they could have afforded to continue this way. And when they put uh, on the scale, become nuclear, uh, against the survivability of the regime, I think they would have stopped or mitigated. Um, and we know, we know that they are quite rational. I don't take it that they are crazy or, uh, or I mean, they are radical. But they, the only time we know that they voluntarily, Chuck, suspended their nuclear uh, program was in 2003 when uh, the Americans were both on their both borders, on the Afghanistan border and Iraq border, and they thought that they would be next. So if we do not re-establish a credible, a credible military threat, and we can talk about later on programs whether Israel can pose can can uh, can show such a credible uh, uh, threat, but certainly America can. But without a, credi uh, a credible military threat on the one hand, and uh, and economic threat of a total social and economic unraveling of Iran, without these two threats, I don't see they stop the the program, and a an agreement now. I'm not sure addressing the issue that they will stop. Look, I, we all share the, um, the desire to prevent them from, the determination to prevent them from going nuclear. I'm not sure that I agree with you or I don't agree with you that the Trump sanctions had them on the verge of collapse. And by the way, they, it's not, they didn't just uh, suspend the program in 2003. The, the JCPOA was a suspension. And at least the tentative, the, the putative will, willingness on their part to agree to, to go back to the agreement would be another suspension. There are certainly problems with going back today. We'll get into this uh, more deeply next time. First of all, just the fact that over five of the ten primary years of the agreement have already gone by, actually five and a half. That's a serious problem. I'm not sure that the agreement really is uh, weaker and... Um, what did you say? Shorter. shorter. Well, it's definitely shorter. By definition, By definition it's shorter. It's shorter without right. extending uh, it. Yeah. Right. Uh, and maybe actually the, the battle should have been about extension and not about uh, designating the Revolutionary Guards and all sorts of other things. But we'll get into that. Uh, I think maybe just to conclude this uh, section about their basic interests. And again, rem remember, I'm the last person in the world who wants to defend them. I just try to... You do it quite well, well admirably you. well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> which shows to me to your great intellect for being able to do that. Yeah, well, I was an analyst for enough, right. for enough years, and right. Right. we're trained to put ourselves in the adversary's position. Right. Um, I hope I'll do the Israeli side reasonably well next time also. <laughs> but I think we, we should just wrap this up maybe by 
specifying. There, there are three different uh, precedents that the Iranians look at that are a strong input into their thinking. And one of them is, is Iraq, Saddam Hussein, who had a nuclear program in the past. Okay? Uh, after the second Gulf War, there was a lot of criticism. It turned out a huge intelligence failure. He didn't have a nuclear program at the time, but he certainly had one in the 80s, and Israel put an end to it in, uh, when we bombed the reactor in 81, and then he reconstituted it, and the U.S. put an end to it in 91 uh, in the first Gulf War. The precedent that they look at is, you know, why, Saddam Hussein, why did you keep thumbing your nose at the U.S. before you had the nukes? If you had shut up in 2002, 2003, the sanctions regime and the inspections regime at the time were just about gone. They, they, they'd come apart completely. If he had shut up literally just for another year or two, he could have then reconstituted the program. And once he had the program, nobody would have attacked him. Okay? So that's one precedent they look at. Another one is the Libyan precedent. Uh, Gaddafi had a nuclear program, but in 2003, he got so scared after the second Gulf War because he thought he was the next on the American target list, which he wasn't, but paranoia, of course, is a good thing. So he gave up the program. Uh, he came to the U.S. and to Britain and said, I'm willing to trade the program basically for your bringing me back into the international community, and that's what happened. But then fast forward to 2011, the Arab Spring, and NATO attacks him, and the Iranians take a look and they say, attack and topple and kill him. The Iranians take a look at this and say, you know, Gaddafi, why did you agree to give it up? Had you not done so, nobody would have touched you in 2011. <laughs> and there's one more precedent, but did you want to say something first? Yeah, I wanted to say kind of tied up with the first subject, yeah. Ukraine. Because as you mentioned, uh, oh, Libya right. and Iraq, it's the Ukraine as well. The Ukraine gave up voluntarily uh, its nuclear capabilities, and they see what happens to Ukraine now. After the Soviet Union collapsed, they agreed to give up their, their nukes in exchange for an American and Russian security guarantee. Well, there, there is something to say about international guarantees. I'm sure we can Absolutely. address it in the future uh, programs. Absolutely. All right, and just the third uh, precedent that they look at, which really informs their thinking, is North Korea. Because the North Koreans thumbed their nose at the U.S. for decades. Uh, but they were careful not to push the envelope too far. And so they didn't get attacked. And then in the early 2000s, they crossed the threshold. Today they've already got a significant nuclear capability. And now they do whatever they want because nobody attacks a nuclear power. And this is exactly why we should never allow... Uh, Iran to become nuclear because the, the precedent of North Korea is that they can do pretty much whatever they want and we Absolutely. cannot allow the Iranians to do this uh, Ayatollah's regime to do whatever they want because we know it can end very, very bitterly for the region, for the world, and certainly for Israel. Uh, I couldn't agree more and on the one hand I will uh, pose whatever moderate the dovish positions in the sense that I do think that the a nuclear deal is still the best of the options today. On the other hand, I think that we cannot allow Iran to cross the, the threshold. And if and when the crunch comes, we will have to attack, even though I don't think we can achieve a great deal. <clears throat> well, as we speak, Chuck, you know that uh, there is a, um, I would say, an all-out large uh, IDF I Not IDDF, IDF, yeah. IDF <laughs> uh, exercise. I think it's the largest ever. Largest ever, uh, with uh, hundreds of um, of uh, airplanes and uh, drones uh, 
at one time. So it's another thing to, to, to discuss whether Israel can really effectively stop it or, right. or, or at least moderately uh, um, change it or not. But uh, I would say just uh, one thing, maybe mm -hmm. the end of this program, is that, uh, of course, it's all uh, very theoretical. Uh, but there are some who say that had the maximum sanctions approach of Trump would have continued, the Iranians would have come crawling to Vienna and the outcome of an agreement would have been much better. That is definitely a possibility and we'll, we'll talk about that next time. Uh, so I think uh, the lines of debate have been drawn. There is some agreement and there is some disagreement and there will undoubtedly be some more as we drill down into, into the different options next time. So let me do two things. Uh, first of all, let me invite everyone to join us again Friday, June 3rd, when we will go into the Iranian issue in depth. And I want to conclude again with special thanks to the Miriam Institute and especially to the two co-chairs, Benjamin Anthony and Rosita Pnini. Uh, they do wonderful work, and this is just providing us this platform. It's just one of the things that they do. Wonderful. And I, uh, Chuck, I certainly uh, join you in thanking uh, Benjamin and Rosita. And let me also, uh, once again, thank uh, our listeners, our audience, and encourage them to uh, be in touch and to keep listening. Sounds great. See you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the IDDF podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute hosted by Chuck Freilich, featuring Danny Ayalon. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast at wherever it is that you download your podcasts from, and please consider making a tax-deductible donation to our work via our website at www.miriaminstitute.org. I want to invite you to share this podcast with your friends and family and to submit your questions and comments which you can send directly to Chuck and Danny via their email address at iddf at miriaminstitute.org. Thank you again for your time and for your attention, and we look forward to the next time we meet here at the Miriam Institute. Israel's future in Israel's hands.